Hello, thanks for listening to the podcast. I promise this isn't going to happen every episode, but alas, we did have some issues getting our guest onto the pod on the day of the recording. As a result of this, it does sound like some of us are recording the podcast via phone from a service station car park. Advance apologies for this, and I hope it doesn't impact the episode too much. Enjoy. You know the phrase, softly, softly, catchy monkey? I could catch a monkey. If I was starving, I could. I'd make poison darts out of the poison off of deadly frogs. One milligram of that poison could kill a monkey. Or a man. Prick yourself, you'll be dead within a day. Or longer. Different frogs. Different times. <laughs> Hello, friends, and welcome along to another thrill ride episode of Have You Seen This? The year is 2003, and here is an important message from your Uncle Bill. Don't buy drugs, become a pop star, and they'll give you them for free. And on that quote, I am joined by the Kira Knightley and the Andrew Lincoln of the podcast world. My co-hosts, who love, actually, is Paul Britton and Ben Mercer. How are we all doing? Very good. Paul, if I held up a sign, I would hold up a sign right now saying, do you forgive me? Question mark. <laughs> I think time has passed. We're fine. <laughs> and we finally have a guest this week. The man that got us all out of bed at God knows what time in the morning and joined us very, very late. He can only be described as a legend of the game. And it's Tristian Cooper. Good morning, sir. How are you? Uh, good morning, or almost good afternoon, with the amount of time it's taken me to get set up this morning. Yeah, hi. I'm glad I'm here. I hope I don't disappoint. Ask my ex-girlfriend, so I probably will. <laughs> yes, if there's any underlying tension in the podcast, it's not just the recent announcement from Warner Brothers. It's due to the technical yeah. difficulties we've had yes. this morning. On with the show, then. So we end each pod with a question, which means we start with the same question. And the question was, which movie theme song from the 1980s inspired its very own feature film of the same name? Any ideas? There has been no answers on the Facebook page. Nobody's messaged me. Nobody has given me a correct answer this time around. That's because it's a really hard question. I've got absolutely nothing for this. Yeah, not a clue. Eye of the Tiger? Whose phone is going off? Come on, guys! Hold on, hold on. That's Seriously. My wife calling me. Give me a second. <laughs> oh, wow, he's really taking the phone call from his wife. Right, guys, while he's on the phone, can we just have a little brainstorm set of a session over this? Like, so, do we think, are we going with Eye of the Tiger? Is that our like, final well, answer here? It's just, Rocky is a bit, has been a big thing for us, hasn't it? He knew that you'd watch them and we were, you were going to be talking about. So you think the link is Rocky? That's all I could come up with, bearing mm. in mind what we'd talked about before. So. Mm. Super sorry, chaps, I'm back. That's all right. Um, we as a group from the University of Cinema, we have our answer. Um, I... <laughs> We're going to go with Eye of the Tiger. Yeah. And can I just confirm that that is a complete guess from the top of yet? Because it came from Bruce, yeah, so I can't, I can't trust that you didn't Google it. No, we... Fuck you, Hammond. <laughs> is that the answer? It... The answer is Eye of the Tiger. Yes. Fuck me, you're, not, you're Joe <laughs> fucking hell. Genuinely... That's purely simply based on the fact that we were talking about Rocky and it was just because Rocky, yeah, Rocky yeah, yeah. was in my head and we talked about that song being a banging tune. There is a film from 1986 starring Gary Busey really? called Eye of the Tiger. Wow. That sounds horrific. One of the taglines is, Nam was hell, prison unbearable, but coming home meant murder. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. The other tagline, I need to see this film, which makes me so, so happy is, just a man and his will to survive. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, Ben, I think it's fair to say that none of us have actually ever seen that film. Even even I, I've, I've seen practically everything from the 80s. But yeah, I'd, I don't think I've even heard of that film, let alone seen it. But if it's Gary Pusey, oh, I'm, I'm really tempted to see it. I now. thoroughly recommend you get on the trailer. The trailer is epic it looks like oh. a really terrible terrible rambo remake starring gary Busey, set to the theme tune of eye of the tiger so well done wow mr 
Paul Google Breen. Uh, yeah, fuck <laughs> off. That was a genuine. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm really chuffed. I mean, I would suggest that we review your search history, but I really don't want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> On to our regular show starter then, which is our big picks oh, from hold small on, hold screen. On, and it's on. Sorry, hold on. The, the everything's bullshit in 2020 alarm's going off, so I think oh. we need to jump straight into the news section. Because on Thursday the 3rd of December, uh, Warner Brothers Media made a absolutely seismic announcement of epic proportions, which is they're going to release their entire 2021 film slate simultaneously in cinemas and on HBO Max in the USA. I think we need to just dive straight into that. So who wants to start? Trying to use fewer expletives than I really want to because I really don't want to properly offend people. What a bunch of fucking arseholes. <laughs> I'm struggling to articulate something to say about this to really... Uh, get across the anger that I'm feeling now. Probably somebody else maybe ought to go first. Well, I'll tell you what, let's start with our, our old stalwart, that is Christopher Nolan, because Nolan's now come out and said something about this. I mean, he has to say something about everything that's happening in the uh, movie news at the moment. So he said, some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed the night before thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find they were working, in fact, for the worst streaming service. Ooh. Ouch. It's a pretty shocking move, and I think it's something that is being made by people who are serving a higher power. Obviously, a Warner Media are owned by AT&T. You know, Wall Street believe that the future of the movie industry is streaming, and that's exactly what they've done. They've trying to put everything behind their HBO Max startup because that is failing at the moment. It has roughly 8.6 million subscribers. Now, if you compare that to Disney Plus in the US, has 35 million subscribers. Netflix has 73 million users in November 2020 in the US alone. So, if you compare that, HBO Max is really flagging. And what's worse is there are actually 28 million customers who are eligible for HBO Max because they've already got another version of HBO but they're just not even bothered to even switch over to this thing. So that's exactly what, what they've done here. It's the head of Warner Media and the head of the studios, Warner Studios, have made this announcement. And what's really shocking is that they've done this without consulting a lot of people or letting a lot of people know that they were about to do this. This does only apply to the US. So at the moment in the UK, we, we you know, Warners are still looking to respect the release window. So not all is lost. I'm I'm trying to take the positives out of this. And since the announcement, it has forced UK exhibitors to almost give a definitive reopening date, which has moved forward from May, June to February, March. Mm. So yes, it's terrible. Uh, and I do believe that HBO Max, there is probably no future in it. Just trying to find the positives in this situation rather than rather than get all angry about it. Tristian, as a film booker, and you probably work closely with Warners and any of us, how are you feeling about this? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of in two minds about it. You've already, you guys have already said quite a lot of the points that I, has been going through my head. This is, uh, this is a deal just in the United States because HBO is only available in that territory. So, uh, but of course, it's the domestic box office that's going to be affected, or is it? You know, there are people, there are pundits are already saying that because of the the low uptake of HBO, people are still going to go out to theaters. So, uh, you know, I, I can envision that if, if people have got the choice, there will be those that will maybe choose to stay at home and watch it. But then after several months of captivity, of staying in your house and watching stuff on a small screen, would people rather take that opportunity to go out and watch something on a big screen? Plus, we're talking about, yes, it's a big, big company, but it's one, mm. Warner Brothers. There are still several other studios who are still going to be releasing their content. They're not going to streaming. So it, it's uh, yeah, 17 totally. to 21 films next year. That is a quite a chunk of, of, of films. 
but not every single one of them is going to be a heavy hitter. You know, like take Godzilla versus King Kong, for instance. The last Godzilla did not perform that strong. And so this one maybe isn't, you know, going to be the, the big hit, even if it was just in, in theatres, as they call it in the States. Uh, speaking as someone who actually sat through uh, Godzilla King versus Monster, I was there and I watched it underperform in the room as it completely underwhelmed the audience that was sitting there oh, with wow. me. All three of them. <laughs> Sold out yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's funny that you should mention Godzilla versus Kong, because obviously legendary pitchers who have a 75% stake in Godzilla versus Kong, they were completely blindsided by this. And there is talk today, uh, this morning in the industry papers, that they're going to pursue a legal course of action because they try to sell Godzilla versus Kong to Netflix last week for 250 million uh, US million dollars and uh, Warner Brothers uh, stopped the move probably because they knew they were going to do this a week later so yeah they're very pissed off mm. you know Gal Gadot has already been paid a, a disc an undisclosed sum uh, for Wonder Woman 1984 to come out direct to streaming people's contracts have the money that these films generate written into the to their deal and how much money is Warner Brothers going to have to fork out in in sort of these legal proceedings and all these back-end deals just to offset this decision to to bolster their failing streaming service when the this all broke last week the actual structure of it is bafflingly weird as well because take wonder woman for instance on christmas day they're going to do a simultaneous release wonder woman is going to play in theaters for uh, as as long as it can but apparently it's only going to be available on hbo max for like four weeks and then they're going to take it off the streaming service mm. and if they're going to have that template all the way through next year that, that just seems weird to me as well. It's like they want to go out of their way to lose money. It's on a positive side. Today, ironically that we're recording this, is the first day that the vaccines have started to be used in the UK. Yeah. I'd like to believe the positive, optimistic side of me is that we're now trying to start to turn the corner on this uh, epidemic and that maybe going into 2021, things are going to start to get a lot better. People are going to get confidence back. There's a vaccine. It's not all doom and gloom. Then uh, maybe it could be that in this territory, I guess they're committed now to a year in the States. But in this territory, maybe things will, will, will change and be a lot better. Fingers crossed, man. Fingers crossed. Yeah, definitely. I'm worried that Warner Brothers have fired the first shot. Streaming is the future. With this move, we can make sure that we've got revenue coming in. If there's any future pandemics, if there's any other issues with um, exhibitors going into bankruptcy, it doesn't matter because we've got a streaming platform so we can release our content straight onto there. But then that just fundamentally changed the game. You're not you're not going to have these big budget blockbusters hitting the screens anymore. I mean, Netflix are operating 14 billion in debt because the amount of content they're producing is eclipsing their, their revenue that they're bringing in every year. So it's setting up a precedent of people expecting big budget blockbusters buses in their living room but none of these companies can deliver on that promise because the streaming model doesn't support that kind of industry you don't get these big superhero films on these mediocre budgets and and what will happen is your the, the price of your subscription will start to rise so you know yeah, totally you're no longer going to get netflix for 7.99 that will become a 19.99 service and people will will be unhappy about that but actually it's it's the future they're creating for themselves i really you know i will be watching disney on thursday to see what happens i'm really hoping that tristian's right that it is just one studio's play and other studios will just look the other way and go do you know what that's not what we're gonna do preview time highlights from some of our current West End attractions. So back to our regular show starter then, which is our big picks from the small screen. And it's a highlight that we've watched or streamed outside of the two films in review. I'm going to start because I've got a little bit of a bone to pick with Mercer on this. If, oh, I, no. if I read this review, a dystopian YA adaptation landfill made only mildly interesting by its depiction of futuristic <laughs> steampunk. But that isn't enough to save a very unoriginal story by flat acting and giant green screens. 
avoid. Right, so what Hammond's done there is he's gone onto my letterbox and he's read out my review of the quite dreadful Mortal Instruments, Mortal Remains. No, what the fuck is it called? Engine, Immortal Engines? Mortal Engines. It's so shit. So what actually happened was I watched Mortal Engines, quite enjoyed it, went to log it on my letterbox and saw you reviewed it. And I was like, your review does not match the film that I've watched. It's actually pretty <laughs> Mate, it was good. fucking shit. <laughs> no. I watched a film from this year, believe it or not, Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss, which I also quite enjoyed. I don't think it's as good as other adaptations of the Invisible Man story. I don't think there was enough tension in there, but it was very, very good. I don't know if you guys have, have caught up with this yet. I saw it twice, actually. I really enjoyed it because I thought it was quite a, a modern take. Traditionally, Invisible Man, it's, it, it's through like a chemical imbalance or it's a, an accident of mm. some kind, but this was using modern technology yeah. uh, for him to become an Invisible Man, and I really enjoyed that, and I thought Elizabeth Moss was fantastic as well. It, it, it wasn't so much a horror, it, it was more kind of like a techno thriller and uh, and i just thought it was a fantastic update yeah and i think elizabeth moss's stock is just going up and up and up i think she's absolutely incredible and then my third pick is a film that i have never seen before and i was a little bit ashamed to admit that i'd never seen this before and this is 1994's interview with the vampire i've never seen this before uh, and i thought it was brilliant really really enjoyed every bit it's brad pitt and Tom Cruise being very, very camp as vampires, raising Kirsten Dunst as a child vampire. And, you know, I'm sure everybody in the planet has seen this apart from me, but I really enjoyed it as a first watch late last night. Why do you like Mortal Engines? I'm sorry, I gave you a very easy ride just then, and I gave Paul a really hard time last episode. So I think I need to understand, what what is it about Mortal Engines that you liked? Because it was just green screen, pure, young adult, dystopian bullshit. Okay, first of all, my wife and I are not going to watch Mortal Engines five weeks before Christmas every year, so that's fine <laughs> not a great film but just entertaining it's nonsense it is is it's utter hogwash and it is essentially the british have decided to escape britain and march across europe in their giant roving i was gonna say if there was ever like a visual representation of what people were hoping for after brexit mortal engines is the yeah. one tristan what have you been watching mate inspired by you guys and also the fact that we hit december 1st uh, well, eight days ago i've been watching christmas films quite a lot so i've been trying to watch some new stuff i watched uh, christmas chronicles 2 uh, not the greatest film on the planet quite sweet quite fun very silly in ott and i do like kurt russell as uh, santa claus it works now that he's in the right age bracket uh he's quite charming and he's good so <laughs> i watched the lego star wars uh, holiday special if you're a star wars fan you will love it. Did you find it funny? I take it by your question that maybe you didn't. I thought it was hilarious. I thought that the Lego humour has been applied to so many different franchises. I've played practically every one of the games that's come out. And I just, yeah, I just really dig them. And I just thought it was great. And with Ray going through the, the little time travel thing that she does, just visiting all those little moments through the, the Star Wars franchise gave me a great thrill. And at like 47 minutes, however long, it doesn't outstay itself. Yeah, it's very short. I, sure. I just thought it was yeah, really yeah. enjoyable. And uh, I w I've watched it a couple of times and I thought it was great. I've also been watching classics as well, like I watched Elf, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, a couple of my personal favourites. And, um, you know, your favourite, Ben, uh, Love Actually as well. <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, who doesn't enjoy a bit of rapey Andrew Lincoln every once in a while? No one does. It's over-sentimental, but it's perfect for this time. I can, I totally understand why people love that film. I'm, I'm totally open to, to reappraise this film. I just, as I said, I think it's narratively and structurally a bit of a mess, but individual portions of it are fantastic. Mo moving on swiftly from the Christmas theme, because it's obviously stressing Mercer out. TV, I'm absolutely, again, it's a Star Wars theme. I'm just absolutely infatuated with The Mandalorian at the moment. Oh, um, yeah. 
Season yeah. one, I did all in one day. I did like a Mandalorian Monday during the summer, and I watched all eight episodes and thought it was great. But I couldn't hold back this time. I've had to watch the episodes as they dropped each week. So six episodes in, season two has just been absolutely, to use a Hammondism, phenomenal. Uh, it's just been <laughs> watching each uh, each week, and uh, the last two episodes have just been absolutely stunning. Uh, bringing a character in who's only ever been in animation form and bringing back a classic character from 37 years ago, which just just gave me... Wonderful. I was just elated. The Mandalorian delivers. It's the best thing outside of Rogue One, which I loved as a film. I think it's the best thing that happened to Star Wars in, in decades. So um, mm. loving that. Well, I think it's the best TV show available at the moment i think wow, okay. what it's doing so well is it's giving fan service to people like us who are really embedded into this franchise but also they're very short episodes they're very narratively tight i mean robert rodriguez on the last episode was just so good with the action even if you're not a star wars fan you're going to get something out of this and they're not afraid afraid of episode length as well because this is the shortest episode the most recent one is something like 34 or 36 minutes long unbelievable considering how much happens yeah. I, I couldn't believe it each episode is like a mini film a mini movie and uh, like you said the action's fantastic but it's also so that the detail in the story and more importantly the character as well uh you know there was big concerns about oh, this guy's never going to take his helmet off how, how are you going to relate to him how are you going to emote to him but you do you mm. know you, you, you're totally with his character and with this quest that he's on to return the child back to whoever he belongs to you know which uh, i don't know how long they're going to stretch this out but we've learned some very important things in the last few episodes and i can't wait for the next two so uh very very excited to uh, see those in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great impression. Yeah, thank you. And uh, finally, the the big film that I watched this weekend, which I've been looking forward to since, I don't know, 2007, was Mulan, the new live-action version of, uh, of the classic tale. So it's now finally available to watch without you having to pay a premium, unlike your wonderful guest last week, Miles, who actually paid his 20 quid. I was very much against that, so I've been waiting to watch this. Uh, I have to say, it's very enjoyable. Uh, it's epic in the way it's been shot. It's, it's glorious to look at. It's the standard online story unlike the disney's animated version from 98 there's no singing no songs there's no little mushu dragon and i know that fans of the film might miss that part mm. but it's a, it's a very good solid telling of the story i mean it's great to see donnie yen in anything but he's fantastic as this general of the uh, the emperor's army uh, and the lead actress as well is very very good so um a highly enjoyable film but if you guys get a chance to watch it, it it's well worth it nice one awesome paul what have you been watching mate i've watched a five-part documentary series on sky called the comedy store so it's about the comedy store in la mm. so the history of when it opened in the 70s right the way through to to now obviously yeah and uh, it's interviews with the comedians that have played there and the stories surrounding events that have occurred through the history of this place if you like stand-up comedy i, I really recommend it it's a really interesting nice one. thing you get to see there's lots of archive footage of some very famous comedians playing there back in the day so it's definitely worth a look i also binged greg davis who is man down mm. Okay. I love that show. It just makes me laugh out loud. So I've watched all four seasons of that. Uh, and finally, I watched, I think it's on, yes, it's on Netflix. So it's an Indonesian action movie starring Iko Uwais from The Raid and Raid 2. It's called The Night Comes For Us. It's insanely violent and bloody, almost cartoonish in how over the top it is. But the action shot similarly to The Raid. And if you like that sort of over the top action movie, lots of really well choreographed fights and you sort of lots of gunplay and things like that. Definitely one to watch if you're in the, in the mood for that type of movie. So, uh, so yeah, so those are my highlights from this week. I saw that last year, Paul, and uh, absolutely fantastic. It was in my top 10 for last year. Yeah, it is great. Yeah, if you like that sort of stuff, Hammond, if you haven't seen it, get on it. Yeah, sounds right on my street. It's probably going to be something I watch this afternoon, to be honest with you. So I'm carrying on with my Rocky binge at the moment. So I've gone 
forward in time to Creed, which came out a couple of years ago with Michael B. Jordan and um, Stallone reprising his role as Rocky. I feel so cheated by the main theme. I mean, if you've seen Creed, they keep teasing it. You think it's going to come in. You think it's going to come in. And then eventually when it does come in, like in the final, final act of the film, they only play it for about 10 seconds. And I was really yearning to hear that, like those, those sort of, you know, big trumpet sounds like playing out. It's a bit of a weird one, Creed, because it's clearly done with a sort of gritty start. It's the same director as um, Fruitville Station, I think, is Ryan Coogler. So it's, it's done in a much more kind of realistic tone, but it is set very much embedded in the world of Rocky. So there's some weird flourishes in it. Like every time they introduce a boxer, like a weird sort of like Guy Ritchie stats, like fly up on the screen, like this guy's Billy the Boxer and he's boxed all these people. Look at him. Um, I, I want to see that film. I, I, I want to see I want to see Billy the Boxer. As <laughs> if knowledge of sports once again precedes you. <laughs> I know. It's astounding, guys. Guys, if, hit me up for sports facts anytime, guys. Uh, get them right here. But yeah, it, it was a really, really good film. Stallone is incredible in it. Really, really enjoyed him. And as I said, Michael B. Jordan was fantastic. Like Hugh Hammond, I'm working my way through the Harry Potter films at the moment. I didn't really like the first Harry Potter film. I think it was like tarnished by the fact it came out the same time as Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, because which, you know, which is clearly the superior film. But actually going back to it, it, it was really charming watching the first one. I kind of didn't mind it as much. It kind of, you know, got through it, zipped through it. It kind of reminded me of like watching it, at, you know, very young sort of Christmas. But by the time you get to Harry Potter in the chamber of... <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets is so long. Why is it so long? I mean, narratively, maybe it just needs to fit the school year, which would make sense because my secondary school days were fucking endless. They just dragged on. So maybe that's what they were trying to do. Kenneth Branagh is amazing, but he isn't in it nearly as much as you remember. He needs to be in it way, way more. But it's just a series of scenes of just Potter and the gang going around fixing leaky taps. It, it was very dull. But um, yeah, I can see on your letterbox, Hammond, that you, you enjoyed it. You gave it three and a half stars. I like I said to you before we started recording, is, is I just got an enormous nostalgia whack. It took me right back to my early days as an usher. It's interesting that the bad guys only try and kill Harry Potter during term time. So, <laughs> you know, somewhere off. <laughs> let's get back to it. Right, so it's now time to turn a spotlight onto our guest. Tristiane Cooper is an industry veteran with many years working in the exhibition industry, working across a variety of different roles. He is currently a film booker and programmer for Cine World Cinemas. Tell us a bit about yourself. What got you into the industry? And maybe tell us a bit about your sort of first days, your early days and your first roles, because you've been you've been working in the exhibition industry for, for quite a while now. Yeah, uh, almost 20 years. Uh, in fact, uh, next summer will be my 20th anniversary. It was July 2001. Basically, the, the job that I had before come to an end and I was looking, I was just looking for something to tide me over. And there was jobs going at what was then Sheffield UGC. So I went along, did the interview and and got hired as a, a team member. Cinema's been part of my DNA since a very small child. Uh, it was it was great to sort of take a hobby of mine and actually turn it into a, a profession. Mm. So those early days, I do missed my time at the cinema, uh, although it is now 15 years ago. But I've still got some great memories. I've still got some great friends that I made during that time. Amazing. So you said you no longer work in front of the buying public. What are you currently up to? And uh, what does your day-to-day -day look like in that role? Yeah, in 2005, I uh, went for a uh, job position at our head office as a film booker or film buyer or film programmer. We've had many 
different names over the years as the as the role has changed and adapted. The crux of my job is I work in a team, the film team, and it's our job to look after our core of cinemas, like 100 or so cinemas, split up between the nine of us. And I look after around 16 cinemas on a weekly basis. And it's my job to plan and program and book in the films that they show. So if I just take a standard nineplex, I book in new films. And on a weekly basis, I also decide what's going to continue to play in those cinemas. Mm. So on a weekly basis, we speak to distribution. We tell them this is exactly what we're playing in this particular cinema and do that times 16 for myself personally. And that's the the essence of the job. So basically it's booking in films and then it's a supporting role to our cinemas as well during the, the course of the rest of the week. Most of my team think that you guys just sit around all day watching films. How many films do you think you guys actually do watch when you're deciding what goes into the cinemas? Yeah, that is something across the industry. I think everybody looks at every exhibitor's film teams and thinks that that's all that we do. It is a core part of our job we do go to what's called exhibitor screenings we get to see films in advance of release and it's not just a jolly to sit down and enjoy films but uh, it is actually quite important because we make decisions based on on viewing these films so we have to decide is this commercially viable Mm. is this film going to work in all of our cinemas no it might only work in say 20 or 30 where we know there's an audience profile for that type of film Cineworld's quite famous for the way that we support the Bollywood community for instance yeah totally it's a huge part of it yeah we've got cinemas in key locations across the country where Bollywood product is bigger than Hollywood product so the people who are booking those cinemas know this and they know that when the Bollywood titles come along those are the films you have to prioritise getting into the cinema because the audience in that area in the catchment area that's what they want to go and see I've I've often said that, yeah, it's great to watch all these films and people get quite jealous and go, oh, you must have a great time. But we also sit through some absolute shit as well. (laughs) We watch the bad films so that you don't have to. Christ, if Brie's ever a film booker, I'm going to work for McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) Easy. Wow. Amazing. So we're coming up to the end of the year. Do you have a a sort of top 10 films of of 2020 that actually did come out this year and weren't just pushed back to 2021? I do. Uh, And actually, funnily enough, my my top three has stayed the same since March, but there are a few uh, streaming films that I've got in there. I'm expecting uh, some kind of grief from my first choice. At number 10, I uh, I know you guys did not like this, so I'm expecting you to boo me, so please, by all means. But um, I'm a big fan of the lead star. I love the whole concept, and I absolutely enjoyed this film a lot more than probably I should. But at number 10, it's Eurovision Song Contest. Boo! The story. Oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> off to a bad start, we can only go up from here. And, uh, you're exactly. Well, no, I absolutely do it. I'm a big fan of the Eurovision. I thought that Will Ferrell, as an American, absolutely got the spirit of it correct and right. It, it made me laugh. Uh, I thought the songs were great and Dan Stevens steals the film. I, I loved Eurovision and, I- and I'm unapologetic. Uh, okay, number nine is Jojo Rabbit. Great pick. Number eight is The Trial of the Chicago 7, which I just one of the best courtroom dramas I think I've ever seen. At number seven is The Gentleman, a real return to form for Guy Ritchie and probably one of the best things that Hugh Grant has done outside of Love Actually. <laughs> At number six actually is a film that I saw a film called Herself, which due to uh, cinemas closing again has now, I believe, been bumped to next year, but uh, it was scheduled to come out and it's it is one of the best films that i've seen this year uh, absolutely fantastic film it's about the subject of domestic abuse and the uh, the leading lady claire dunn who plays sandra is absolutely fantastic and I think she will be up for awards next year or maybe possibly 2022 now. So top five at number five, Jagger's Maz, but a <laughs> movie film. 
I like it so much. Uh, you want to touch my crumb? Absolutely fantastic. Uh, funniest thing I've seen all year. And again, such a shame that wasn't on a big screen because like mm -hmm. 2006, I genuinely missed the audience interaction with that film. Still found it hilarious. And um, yeah, Cohen is just an absolute genius. It, it would have helped it so much, definitely with me, because I just did not find it funny enough. Like Hammond said, if I was in an audience of people just laughing their ass off, I probably would have found it way more funnier. It's one of those films which I think you have to see with an audience. You know, so m most comedies, um, you would agree that you do actually have to do that. So at number four, causing more controversy, especially for Ben Mercer, is Tenet. I absolutely adored this. Mm. I got it. I've heard a lot of, uh, of what you've been saying. You managed to hear something in that film, did you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are sequences where I do believe that Nolan does it on purpose. It's quite clear he does it on purpose. He's come out on the record and said that, yeah. Uh, and I just think that adds to it because, yeah, sometimes when you're watching a big blockbuster and you can hear everyone in the scene, like, okay, I love Avengers Endgame, but in that final finale, who the hell can hear anybody talking to? You know, you can stand right next to somebody and you won't be able to hear what they're saying amidst all that carnage. But yet we as an audience can hear it perfectly. And I guess that's the filmmaking process. But at the same time, I, I don't know. I just like the way that Nolan makes his films and Tenet for me worked. And I thought, well, chances are that's information we don't need to know. I got the story without having to know every bit of dialogue. That makes sense. Sorry, you wanted more realistic audio from the film which features space aliens and giant Ant-Men. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a criteria <laughs> for me. Anyway, uh, my top three, and like I say, this hasn't changed since March. Uh, number three, one of my all-time favourite Pixar films is Onward. I thought this was great. The most fun I've had watching a Pixar film since Up, and I got quite a bit of, it caused controversy when I went back to the office and I said this, because everyone was like, well, what about Inside Out, and what about this, and what about that? And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're all great, but this film's I think it's just got something really special about it and uh, I think it has because even even when we reopened our cinemas people were still going back to the cinema to watch Onward mm. who had sold out performances at the weekend which was yeah. great to see uh, but I I, I, th I loved Onward and I thought Tom Holland and Chris Pratt their double actors the siblings really worked a treat uh, and number two is Parasite absolutely fantastic film a film I've seen about seven eight times and just gets better with each viewing and then my number one film is um, this has been stuck with me since January uh, just absolutely incredible Incredible, in my opinion, uh, it's 1917, uh, one of the best war films I think I've ever seen. And Tristian, we can be friends again. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, Paul. Oh, that gets the Paul's seal of approval. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. I, 1917. I've, I've watched it again on uh, Amazon Prime recently. And uh, even on the small screen, it, the, the intensity of that film doesn't let up. But yeah, I got to see it again in IMAX at the start of the year. And uh, yeah, it's it's been my number one film for the last uh, 11 months. Absolutely incredible. Uh, so there you go. That's my top 10 for 2020. Nice. Fantastic. Just uh, for people maybe listening to the podcast, I know that film programming is uh, certainly a, a, an interesting role that people would like to get involved with. If you had any advice for anyone who's listening now, how would they go about maybe one day becoming you know part of your team or, or part of another sort of film booking team? Well, if people listening who are working in the cinema industry or Ready, like working in a cinema at site show the passion and enthusiasm for film and speak to your your general manager you guys i'm sure have people who work at your cinemas who might have mentioned things like this before perhaps maybe definitely yeah, yeah i know that when i started working in sheffield i had no idea what the process was was for getting films into cinemas i don't think you know anyone outside the business does know that you know they go to the cinema films they're showing they have no idea of what the intricacy that goes on behind the scenes i didn't i learned that as i was working in sheffield because in 2002 i was given the task of doing the film times for sheffield and i worked with a guy called ian mcleod who was uh, working in the film team at the time in 2005 he left and i ended up going for his job and i kind of replaced him nice and one. that was my way so uh, if, if you're working in a cinema speak to your management show that your enthusiasm ask questions about the, um, what what kind of roles are happening at your the head office tristan we always like to ask our guests this so do you have a guilty pleasure 
that you would like to share with us? To be honest, I have many guilty pleasures. There's a couple of, uh, are in my top 10 for this year, but mm. uh, interesting, keeping with the theme of what you guys have been talking about, I, I happily admit that I've got a, a soft spot for Rocky Five. Yeah, it's the one that's always given a lot of grief. A lot of people don't like it. They feel it's the lowest run of the uh, franchise. But I recently watched all six of them, and I loved Rockies 1, 2, 3, 4, absolutely fantastic. And then I got to Rocky Five, and I thought, oh, this is one that I'm, I'm just not going to enjoy. But watching them in sequence, uh, there's, there's a lot going for it. You've got the original director back. You've got a wonderful cameo uh, by Burgess Meredith in there as Mickey. And there are some negatives, like the Tommy Morrison, the, the real-life boxer, was hired to play Tommy Gunn, and he can't act. He is terrible. Mm. You've got, is it Richard Gantz, who's playing the Don King-esque boxing promoter, OTT, flamboyant, very annoying. It's tough to get through his scenes, although it's wonderful when Rocky punches him out at the end. And what I actually love about Rocky V is the fact that every Rocky film has got, uh, has got a standard modus operandi day to the point where in the 80s everyone's like oh it's another Rocky film you know exactly what's going to happen he's going to get in the ring at the end he's going to win blah 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 but what Rocky 5 does is it ends actually in a street fight you don't see Rocky get into the ring he actually ends up having a big smackdown with Tommy Gunn in the middle of the street and that was quite different and I like it for that a lot of fans don't people do deride it I actually found that Rocky Balboa hasn't aged as well over Rocky Five, but I know that a lot of people will probably give me a lot of grief and are probably shaking their heads at their laptops right now going I know Paul is they, yeah, ha exactly. ha Hammond's silence speaks volumes I am got nothing to say to you ever again <laughs> i do rec i recognize it's not the greatest film certainly not in the franchise or by any means but i just in there are lots of elements i enjoy about the film yep sorry guys that's my choice for for, for this section <laughs> the most incorrect guilty pleasure we've ever heard <laughs> you've just decreed your let's move on we're moving on that's twice you've managed to ruin my morning <laughs> you got hype kid you got hype <laughs> All I have for you is a word. Avengers! What'd you say? What's that? Moving on to our regular feature then, which is our two films in review. And this week were picked by Breen. So Breen, talk us through your picks and tell us your thoughts. Okay, so the uh, so two choices this week were from Amazon Prime, a film called Lucky from 2017, which I never got around to seeing at the time. The second film was on Netflix. It was a, a horror film that came out this year, two or three weeks ago, called His House. So let's start with Lucky, shall we? Realism. It's the practice of accepting a situation as it is. What you're saying is what you see is what you get. But what you see is not what I get. Lucky fell down. Let's not make a production out of it. No sign of concussion. Lungs are great even though you smoke. You get much exercise. I walk around all the time. I do five yoga exercises every day. I'm scared to death. I started thinking there's nothing out there. It's all black. The Void. It's the story of a 90-year-old man, played by Harry Dean Stanton, who lives in a little backwater town. It's about him coming to terms with his mortality. Mr. Hammond, I think you wanted to go first. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. What I've really enjoyed about doing the podcast for you guys is that I think previously I would have just looked at this film and gone, well, it's rubbish. Actually, it's not a bad film. It's just not for me. It, mm. I found it very slow. Don't really understand the point. I don't really get what happened. The second half definitely improved. But it, it just left me feeling a little vacant. I don't really understand what I watched. I can't really say anything else. Love Harry Dean Stanton. Adore the guy. I think he's great. Loved him in this. I just didn't get it. So I'm, I'm really, really interested to hear what you three have to say about it. I can see why potentially it would be you could get that and just not get it. I, I 
have to say that I absolutely loved this film. Harry Dean Stanton, for me, I just think is a wonderful actor. And obviously I, I would watch him just paint the fence because I think he's, he's just fantastic. But it's it's such a, it's it just a sort of, it's like an essay on someone coming to terms with their mortality and mm. basically thinking they're in effect, they're, you know, invincible. Uh, that they keep going. That you know, he's ninety years old. The character he's playing in this film. I don't think I believe he was actually ninety years old when he made the film. Yeah, I mean, you say character. I mean, it wasn't long before this film being made, and then him passing away, unfortunately. It, yes, yes, yeah. Which is surprising considering the the yoga exercises that he does during the film uh, and the opening sequences. I can't even do that now. He's extremely active, and it was a real shock to sort of discover it was wasn't short long after the making of this film that he did pass away. But I, as a treaty on on someone coming to terms with with their mortality and then just being happy with where they were and how that how they'd come to that the reaction and smile being the important word uh, when you watch the film it, that will make much more sense it almost felt a little bit like it was a bookend with Paris Texas which I know we all love totally I know it's a different character but just sometimes it it, it just reminded me a little of that maybe because of the location and some of the, some of the shots I and mean, it was David Lynch's son I think he, I think he did a great job I think he he made the very small backwater town that they're all living in vibrant even though it was small mm. you, you got very familiar with the geography of that place with with the way it was shot, I think it worked very, very well. And it just, it made me feel good. It, it, I just really enjoyed that performance. I, I was mesmerized by what he was doing or not doing mm. uh, in that in that film. And then there were just pockets of interactions th- throughout the film. The one with Tom Skerritt was wonderful. There were just moments that, that just, they just took it out of that normal thing. And yes, so they may have been slightly quirky in places, but they really worked in the context of the film for mm. him to, to get to his realisation of where he was and being happy with that. I, I thought it was wonderful. I don't, but Mercer, how, how did you feel about it? I mean, Hammond, has that helped? Why did he shout the C word at a garden? Every time he walked past it. it. They barred him. They barred him for smoking. Right, cool. But I also was wondering, maybe it was a, an analogy for the Garden of Eden, because I think this film is very laden with a sort of Beckett feel of, of, of kind of waiting for Godot. There's some very absurdist ponderings on life and what it all means. Eden, yeah. Garden of Eden, but then again, maybe I was I was reading too much into yeah. it. Yeah, that, that was the thing. Eve's was the place where he got into trouble and hence why he was uh, so angry with it uh, each time he walked by. But yeah. I love that, the fact that we only saw the perspective of the venue because it happened a couple yeah. of times i'm thinking why is he shouting that who's it to or what what's the significance of the like the yellow tunnel but then i thought maybe that was a metaphor for you know the tunnel of coming to the end of your life type thing i think it was also because eve's obviously because it was you know th- this it was a desert town but that was a green vibrant garden that was full of life yeah 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 and and that he was barred from that again to, to, again so again there's another layer of metaphor there, there yeah. about life and death i think that's it yeah. you get what you take into this film like whatever you bring into it is probably what you're, you're going to take away from it it felt very as i said sort of beckett was a quote but also like lynch it, it was very lynchian in places and case in point david lynch is in this film yeah. and it's directed by his son um there are touches in this where you're not sure if the characters are dreaming or not yeah but yeah and and, and sort of the calling points between Paris, Texas and this, the location, for one, you're absolutely right. Almost like like-for-like shots of uh, Harry Dean Stanton kind of walking along the side of the road with cactuses in the background, like burning LA desert. Very, very reminiscent of the beginning of the opening of, of Paris, Texas. Yeah. I think I'm sort of in between Hammond and Paul on this. I appreciated it more than I actually 
fully enjoyed it. Harrington Santon is brilliant, but I found some of its pace a bit meandering and all these characters, these segue between these characters pontificating on life felt a bit crowbarred in in places, especially in the bar where they're all sort of talking about their life story. It's almost like they're waiting for a character to take their turn in, in telling us about their sad story and why they ended up at the bar as well. Yeah, I mean, it was good. I, I, not amazing, but I think it was good. I, I personally, I didn't love it, but I really, really enjoyed it. You get a sense all through the film, even though he, he, he you know, he goes to the bar and he mm. talks to people there and he interacts and everyone knows everyone, you know, how that lady turns up and he's like, how do you know I live here? Everybody knows where you live, you know. You get that idea of closed community. He generally doesn't actually have a friend, maybe, or someone who's a close confidant that he can actually talk to about how he's feeling. You know, the, one of the opening lines he says, you know, is realism is a thing. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and that's his realization of, of this 90 year lifespan. What's coming down the pike? You know, I, I love the sequence with uh, Ed Bagley Jr. where he's saying to him like, you're 90 years old, you smoke like a chimney yet. There's nothing wrong with your lungs. You're a medical anomaly. You're fine. You're, you're fighting fit. Your heart's great. And the look on Harry Dean Stanton's face is like, oh, look, his face is like, well, so how, what am I? I've got another hundred years or something. I, I love the metaphor with the, the turtle stroke tortoise. He's gone, Howard. And you're all alone. We come in alone and we go out alone. That's awfully bleak. It's beautiful. Alone comes from two words, all one. It's in the dictionary. I miss him. The tortoise is an amazing creature, Lucky. They're as noble as a king and as kind-hearted as a grandmother. I miss my friend. He's not missing, Howard. He's just not here. He's there, wherever the fuck that is. And if he's not there, then he's nowhere. The final shot of the film mm. made me howl. I yeah. thought that was I thought that was beautifully done. Like you say, very Lynchian in the way, well, it's got the pedigree of Lynch uh, with it. Lucky is actually Harry Dean Stanton. It's almost like a, a sign-off for his, his 50-year career in movies. The two scenes that I genuinely love, the scene where uh, he's at the 10-year-old kid's birthday party and he just starts singing in Spanish. Mm, yeah. The other scene, which is... God, oh, yeah, Tom Skerry. I just love the fact that 38 years after Alien, they have that wonderful scene in the diner, and, and it's just absolutely beautiful. Red Sparks. Yeah, they call me Lucky. Uh. <laughs> I was a cook. On paper, that's supposed to be the easiest job in the Navy. That's why they call me lucky. What were you riding then? LST. LST. Landing ship tank. Right. We're hauling ammunition for the big battleships. We're like riding a stick of dynamite. Yeah, we got a ship shot out from underneath you. Almost once. I thought it was really interesting because they wrote that into the script. Harry Dean Sanson talked about he was in the Navy and the job he had on that boat. That was actually his job during the Second World War. That's what he actually did when he was in the Navy. So they incorporated that as part of the script. So that was that was real life he was talking about. Nice. Uh, and then on to your second pick then, Paul. Congratulations. You're being released as asylum seekers, not as citizens, not yet. You will be sent to a home of our choosing. You must not move from this address. We are good people. Whether or not you're good people, it's not me that needs convincing. So second pick, uh, as I say, was uh, called His House. So it's a film released this year on Netflix, and it's the story of two refugees from southern Sudan who come to the UK after an extremely harrowing journey and are put into a house where they are told they have to stay, and then strange things begin to ensue. So who wants to start with this one? Fucking hell, mate. <laughs> this film was horrible. <laughs> oh, I 
I fell apart. Oh, <laughs> I cannot do horror films. They just, they really put me on edge in a way that I can't even articulate. I, I just, I don't know what it is. I don't understand the need for, for people watching things that make people feel this uh, catatonic. I, I just, I, I really struggled with this film. Really struggled. I found it fairly tame i'm honest oh god yeah <laughs> well i'm just a i'm just a pansy then aren't i i can always tell when a horror film is hitting its mark because my wife will watch it from behind a cushion and ask me has it happened yet is it over yet and that was the case <laughs> of perhaps the first half of this film but certainly not all of it i mean there was real tension in some scenes but it really followed up with the usual jump scares that we, we've come to expect from this kind of genre in it it was lacking a little once the story started. But I think that's why it was so effective, because it didn't have the jump scares. It had the absolutely horrific sound design of the pitter-patter of feet stomping around the different parts of the house, which made it more... In fact, one of the notes I have here is that towards the end, when it goes a bit more CGI heavy, it's not as effective as when it's just a sort of a real-life person walking around the place. Yeah. And that's it. It's those looking off into the distance and, and sort of hearing something and then maybe seeing something. But did you really see it? And that's that was effective for me and and that's what the problem with a lot of horror films is that once you you get to see the the evil thing mm. all of what you've created in your head is gone and that was my issue with this but i i mm. i really enjoyed it so for a first time director i think they did a really good good job i think it was they told a very interesting story in a in a, in a really sort of different way and mm. the the scary part of it was very effective very early on when you didn't know what it was once that was manifest and it became like you said a bit more cgi heavy or it was just a bit more blatant all of the the tension for me then drops out and it just becomes a little bit more conventional at that point so the holding of breath for the first half an hour is then released and then i'm not scared anymore after that mm. I, but i thought it was really really dynamic in the way it, it kept sort of jumping backwards and forwards in terms of the time frames and 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 things that was wonderful and i, and I enjoyed that story of their yeah they're getting from southern sudan to the uk that was great and also the sort of revelations that that brought up as it went along as well i thought that was really interesting well that was literally what i was going to say like which sort of unveiling are you talking about because there is a third act reveal in this film that absolutely yeah. floored me. I couldn't believe it. It was in yeah. incredible. It deals with that backstory of how they actually arrived there. Yeah, I don't want to sort of spoil it for people who haven't seen it because it is, oh, wow, I did not see, and it's genuinely did not see that coming. It's sort of quite revelatory in modern filmmaking that, that something was able to, to sort of surprise on that level. I enjoyed that nobody did anything overly ridiculous. I mean, how often do we watch horror movies and we turn into Jay from 40-year-old version? We're shouting, get out the room, get out the room. <laughs> Nobody did anything particularly stupid. I mean, I probably wouldn't put my head in a big hole in the wall having seen somebody else looking at me through it. Yeah. Um, but hey, I'm, I'm just one guy. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the two lead actors were exceptional. The yeah, they were brilliant. Real, played by Winmi Masako, was so good and they played off each other so well. One of the big frustrations I found, and I think it was intentional, is that we we never actually know where they are. That, I mean, that's brilliant, though, I think. Yeah, we feel as lost as they are. When he goes to the shop, where are we? Are we in London? The guy's like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> and, and I found that really, you know, you kind of, you, you buy into the, the character's frustration. But all in all, I, I did enjoy this. Yeah. Tristan, what did you think? I really liked it. Uh, a lot of the stuff that you guys have been saying, I completely agree with. I thought the performances by the two leads were excellent. For horror films, it's key that you actually care about the main protagonists you know the, the people who are in harm's way and, and some horror films don't achieve that at all you can watch an entire film and just not care who's in danger or getting killed or or whatever but 
almost within the, the first few minutes. Uh, I think it was that scene where you've got a, a very edited view of their journey from Sudan. You know that the, there's going to be more coming later, although, like you guys have said, the, the third act reveal floored me as well. I didn't see that coming, uh, and that's what I really loved about it. It's the fact that, oh, wow, you've surprised me. It's rare when a film can do that nowadays. But I love the scene where they wake up and um, his wife says, oh, you, you were having a nightmare. What, what were you dreaming about? And he goes, oh, my wedding day. You are dreaming. What did you dream about? Our wedding day. Explains his screams. And I just loved that little character interaction that just kind of endeared them to me straight away as, as a married couple. And I just thought that the two actors were absolutely fantastic. I loved uh, Matt Smith as well. Yeah, he was great. Uh, he had, uh, you know, an, an un a thankless task in his role, but he did it very well. Confident signature. I work in a bank. I worked in a bank. Yeah. Hey. This entire house is just for us. Yeah. All of it. Home. Bigger than my house. I think you two are going to be all right, as long as you can get along, fit in. We are not going back. That's the spirit. Make it easy for people. Be one of the good ones. I, I actually really enjoyed it. I didn't think the CGI at the end was bad. I was so invested in the film by then that sometimes when I see these kind of films, I, I, don't, I don't really judge the visual effects because I know it's a low-budget film and they don't have much money to spend on things like that. So sort of take that with a pinch of salt. Um, all in all, I just thought it was a really good film. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, it totally pulled me apart, but I do think this film was very well made. I like the fact that it didn't even start off by being a full-on sort of horror film. The first 20 minutes or so doesn't feel like that at all. It just feels like a drama of some people getting out of Sudan to escape the militia and then sort of falling into the pitfalls of the bureaucratic asylum seekers process that exists in the UK. You know, it deals with the racial politics of that and what people feel in this country right now with Brexit and everything that's going on. Um, Hammond, I think the unnamed generic UK location was such a great touch. Before the haunting even begins, you're feeling unnerved. The way that Remy Weeks makes like a simple rundown council estate, two bedroom house, just feel horrible, like feels so full of dread, is so, so effective. Like you immediately know you want to be shouting like Jay, get out of there now. And, and they just can't because they've been blessed with this huge house. No, I, I really, uh, I, you know, enjoy maybe isn't the word, but I appreciated this was, was a very well put together film. Thank you very much. That's great. So yeah, I'm still none the wiser on Lucky, but certainly enjoyed his house. So unsurprisingly, I've got a short list. Watch this. Five. Will Ferrell has to be on that list. Four. Four. JFK with Joe Pesci. Yeah, that's my extensive list, which I'm sure will be edited down. Missed the point of this section, Paul. It's explaining why these things mean something to us and why you've chosen them. So on to our review spin-off questions then, Ben, and it's over to you. Okay, nice. So for this episode, I wanted people to think about their favourite on-screen ghost, directly inspired by his house, which absolutely petrified me. <laughs> think about those famous sort of ghouls and nasties that exist, things that really, really scared you, or just ghosts that you just really appreciate that were well-written or well-conceived um, on the screen. Who wants to go first on this? I was going to joke and say Patrick Swayze, but I'm, jo I'm joking. <laughs> Actually, I, I think I've gone a bit left field with my choice because uh, this is a film, again, that I watched recently that I just, uh, I had, it's an underrated gem from 1996 and it's uh, Michael J. Fox in The Frighteners. Oh, I love that film. Yeah, he isn't the ghost, but uh, there's uh, three actors, John Astin, uh, 
Jim Fivey, I think I'm saying his name correct, and uh, Chi McBride, who play the three ghosts that help Frank Bannister, Michael J. Fox's character, to basically con people. They they, they pretend that houses are being haunted, and Frank goes in to perform these exorcisms. Uh, but then something truly nasty from the other side starts to uh, starts hunting people. Start pulling your weight, guys. You're going back to the cemetery. Yeah, well, you can pull this, Frank. I'm about to go like Jesse on your ass. I'm going to find me some other black ghosts and then organize a march. The African-American Apparition Coalition, the AAAC. Comedy horror of the finest mold. Great choice. So it's always with these things, it's almost impossible to narrow down to, to, to a single uh, thing. But, Don't worry. But try, I'm just going to I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go. My actual answer is uh, Casey Affleck in A Ghost Story from 2017. That's on my backup list. Something about that film. When I watched that movie, it was I found it so affecting. I've, I thought about it for days after. And I think it's just because of the the sort of cyclical nature of that film if if everybody's seen it where, where it sort of starts and where it ends and the fact that he spends the majority of the film covered in a white sheet in that mm. sort of very cliched white sheet ghost image him being Casey Affleck being, being Casey Affleck but it just it just worked the, the the whole film worked the performances across the board were wonderful and you, and you could feel emotion from that sheet it was really strange but yeah so that's my choice a ghost story from 2017 that's a really good choice and we were talking earlier on about the the mandalorian and how you can get the emotion from someone who's playing uh, the role underneath a helmet like you you really feel the plight of casey affleck in that film despite the fact as you said that he's wearing a, a sheet mm. for the majority of the runtime yeah. yeah really great choice the other thing i just want to say was any any j horror film any of the the japanese horror stuff the ghosts that they generate those so ringu juon do films like that scary as fuck those those just so freaking weird for me it comes down to the ghost that absolutely terrified me as a child and it's a scene that i still can't watch to this day it's ghostbusters 2 from 1989 <laughs> and it's peter mcnichol as dr jeanzol pora who is the museum creator the boss of uh, sigourney weaver Vigo, the scourge of Carpathia, the sorrow of Moldavia, command you. Oh, command me, Lord. He is bewitched by Vigo, uh, Vigo, the, the painting in the film. And there's a scene uh, near the end where he snatches baby Oscar, Sigourney Weaver's baby, and turns into a ghost nanny that floats above the cityscape of New York. I, I cannot... It just terrifies me. I even googling it now, I, I, pictures came up of his face as the nanny, and I couldn't look at it. It's just <laughs> terrifying. So yes, that's my choice. Uh, uh, Peter McNichol from uh, Ghostbusters Two. Nice. Well, as soon as as soon as I read this question in the notes, there, one answer immediately sprung to mind, and it gives me chills just thinking about it so i've got two answers one that genuinely scares me and one that's a little more festive but the first one she's credited only as kitchen woman it's the woman in the pink robe in sixth sense absolutely oh yeah oh. yeah yeah to this day if i walk into the kitchen and there's a cupboard <laughs> door open i pee a little it's that scene uh, and i remember i watched this on on its opening night at the odeon in maidstone and when i went home and went to the bathroom I had to turn all the lights on because the scene where the person walks past the bathroom door and then he goes into the kitchen and, oh, my Lord, that, that ghost 
frightens me to this very, very day. Ugh. Great um, choice. I, I do have a happier, more festive answer. Go on. The Go incredibly it. volatile Ghost of Christmas Present in Scrooge. Oh. <laughs> Played wonderfully by Carol Kane, Bill Murray's 1988 yeah. Scrooge. I think She's great. Ghost of Christmas Present is wonderful. So there's my two choices. Oh, that is such a good film. She's brilliant. Yeah, great shout. She is brilliant in that film. Very stressful, but brilliant. And we're on to question two. Uh, inspired by the recasting of Johnny Depp in Fantastic Beasts 3, what are the best or worst examples of recasting in a film franchise specifically a time when someone has taken over a role for someone else in a previous film or tv series uh, obviously we don't tend to tug on the johnny depp thread or the the current petitions going around to get amber heard dropped from aquaman 2 so we'll move on and we'll be a little more cheerful about this so who wants to take this away well i actually i i, I picked a worse one and i picked a best one but did you do you want me to just give one example i think that sounds good do, do both there okay well i'll do the worst one first because i'm i'm a fan of the police academies the first four i thought were enjoyable and part of the reason for that and again i hope i don't get any stick but i really genuinely like steve guttenberg oh yeah he was he had a, a very quick fire blast in the limelight and then unfortunately kind of disappeared but part of the the great thing about police academy is he's the charmer he's the rogue guy he's the one who's against the establishment and and mahoney's character is the one that you follow but for after four films he decided to walk away from the franchise and although it's not a direct replacement in terms of character it was a direct replacement in terms of there's no mahoney so we need to fill that gap in police academy five with somebody else and, and another similar Mahoney character. Along comes this guy called Nick, played by Matt McCoy, and he's absolutely woeful. It is so painful. Some dickhead is standing in my sun. Well, Captain Harris, hey, I didn't see you there. You know, I don't think we've been introduced. My name I is don't Nick. care who you are, but why? Just get out of my sun. But wipe. Scram, sleazeball. Police Academies 5 and 6 are, are devoid of humor. They're terrible. And part of the reason is they've got this guy who was at the start of his career, not very good at all. And I, I, I found myself missing Gutenberg. I, I happily watch Police Academies 1 to 4 because they're enjoyable and they're fun. But um, once Gutenberg left, I was very disappointed with, with where the franchise went. Yeah, completely agree. I grew up with the Police Academy films, loved the Police Academy films, but much like the Rocky franchise, after 4, just put it down. Don't go back to it. <laughs> well, apart from Rocky 5. On a swing of that, for what I thought was uh, best recasting, and this is kind of a double whammy because it's the, the multi-franchise that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In the original Iron Man, you had Jim Rhodey Rhodes, played by Terrence Howard, who's one of my favourite actors. I thought he was great in the first Iron Man, but by Iron Man 2, he was replaced by Don Cheadle, who then had the opportunity in multiple roles to sort of really grow into the character. As much as I love Terrence Howard, and I thought he was really good in the role as Jim, I just found that Don Cheadle was more closer to the comic book uh, interpretation. Yeah, and on parallel mm. with that, four yeah. years later, we got Mark Ruffalo and his version of Banner, and more importantly, the Hulk, because from the Avengers onwards, Mark Ruffalo was actually doing the motion capture, so he was also performing as the Hulk, and you just got more of a empathy for that character, which you could in the 2008 version. And so I think both of those choices, one because one actor was particularly difficult and another one because of money, they went mm. off and did other things, and I just think the recasting was actually a stroke of genius because you can't think of anyone else but Don Cheadle playing that role of Jim Rhodes, and certainly not Mark Ruffalo. I think he is the best version of the Hulk that we've seen on screen. So those are my choices. Yeah, good picks. Both vastly superior than their their predecessors so i'm gonna pick i i had don Cheadle on my short list yeah mine too but so I, i'm gonna go straight to uh robert de niro playing vito corleone in godfather part two playing the younger version of uh the character from godfather part one as in the, in the flashback sequences and exceptional piece of casting that really put de niro on the map as a top top screen actor and 
picking up those little traits from Godfather Part 1 as older character, just as you can see the elements of that character building, and he's just created a complete person that you can see if you watch the films in the other, you know, if you watch Godfather Part 2 followed by by one just in terms of those the, the age of that character you can just see the progression in the life of that character i think it was a really nuanced performance that uh, that just really works so yeah so de niro in godfather part two for me i've got two i think i'm, I'm gonna do a bit of a breed on this very quickly richard harris unfortunately passed away after the chamber of <laughs> and albus dumbledore was then played by michael gambon and for me i think he does a much better job with that role he breathes a bit more levity to the character less severe you can really see michael gambon being a wizard to sort of take on voldemort especially in like films like the six one the half-blood prince yeah he's very good in that role and then colin firth was the original voice of paddington the bear but this was before ben wishaw took over the role firth and the filmmakers uh, paul king decided that his voice just wasn't suiting paddington at all and it should go to a younger actor so ben wishaw took over that role and he he is paddington as far as concerned both those paddington films are absolutely amazing and I, i'm really hoping they make a third one why are you looking at me like that is it me or is it hot in here why do i feel so uncomfortable mm. flushed mm. queasy mm. it's called a hard stare my aunt taught me to do them when people had forgotten their manners. So yeah, those are my two choices. Nice. Nice. Well, you've, you've all gone for the good, so I've gone for the bad. And I don't really want to say it, but the only thing I could really think of was possibly Julianne Moore playing Clarice Starling in Hannibal in 2001, because the role was written and meant for Jodie Foster, but they couldn't tempt her back, so Moore was cast instead. Mason Berger wants to kill you, Dr. Lecter. Turn yourself into me and I promise no one will hurt you. Will you stay with me in my present cell and hold my hand, Clarice? We could have some fun. And I get that it's almost impossible to recreate such an iconic character. And the film itself was also pretty shit, so not really Moore's fault. But that's kind of the only thing that really sprung to mind. I download your podcast. I sync it up! <laughs> So that does bring us almost to the end, but we need to know what we're reviewing for episode seven, the Christmas special. Yay! It's Christmas. 2020 is nearly over. We're nearly there, guys. Thank God. <laughs> we are each picking a Christmas film. Yay! So I'll start. I'm going with The Happiest Season, which is directed by Claire Duvall, and it stars Kirsten Stewart and Mackenzie Davis, a young woman with a plan to propose to her girlfriend while at her family's annual holiday party discovers that her partner has not yet actually come out to her conservative parents. So that's the first pick for our Christmas bonanza. And my pick is Last Christmas. So it's about Kate, who is a young woman subscribed to Bad Decisions. Working as an elf in a year-round Christmas store is not good for the wannabe singer. However, she meets Tom there. Her life takes a new turn. For Kate, it seems too good to be true. This was out in 2019, but I didn't see it, and I want to watch it, so we're watching it. To my shame, I've never seen this film. My choice is it's a wonderful life. It needs to be seen. I can't believe I got to this point in my life and never seen the film uh, from start to finish. So that is my choice. Well, there we have it. Three Christmas films to get us all Christmassy. So that's it. I just have an end of pod question for you. And this may well play into Tristian's hands in the job that he's got. So if you do know the answer, or you want to have a guess, just message me and then we'll shout it out in the next episode. So in terms of worldwide box office, which Christmas film is currently the highest grossing of all time? I'll give you a bonus point if you can get within 15 million. Ooh. If people want to get in touch, they can hit us up on the Facebook page. 
facebook.com forward slash seen this. We have a new Instagram page, which they can find us. I believe it's instagram.com forward slash seen this pod. Amazing. And we've also got our email account as well, which yep. is seen this pod at gmail.com. So lots of ways to get in touch with us and we'll give you a shout out on the next episode, which will be releasing on Christmas Eve. Give you something to listen to over the Christmas holidays. And that is it. That is all from us. So Tristian, thank you for ruining my morning. Uh, <laughs> pleasure. I'm glad I managed to ruin the morning for everybody uh, waiting for me to... Uh to sort out my laptop so yeah on a serious note thank you so so much for joining us it's great every time we get you on the podcast really really enjoy it i, I wish you a very very happy christmas mate to you and all your loved ones and uh, thank you very much indeed thank you guys for having me on again i, I really enjoyed it as always i just want to wish uh, all three of you a very happy christmas uh, and a very merry new year to everybody once uh, once we get back into open up our cinemas get back to the cinema if there are any cinemas in your local area that are open over christmas for films like wonder woman or the new version of uh, christmas carol doesn't matter who they are just go visit the cinema enjoy have a great time out they are safe environments and you'll have that bit of magic for your christmas so nice one so yeah my goodbye for this week's podcast is coming out in 2021 it's coming out simultaneously on hbo max and it's also coming out um, on the pod so look out for that next year uh, there's no there's no money in goodbyes so um yeah that's me have a good one guys i just want to echo tristian thank you so much for coming on mate it's always a pleasure uh, apart from obviously rocky five and to everybody else thank you so much for listening be good if you can't be good be careful take care be safe christmas eve for episode seven awesome thanks guys you've been listening to have you seen this with paul breen ben hammond and ben mercer the main theme is written by akira ifakubi and remixed by ben mercer with beats supplied by lander please like and subscribe and share where possible and check us out on facebook facebook.com forward slash seen this s-c-e-n-e this for all the latest updates all views and opinions in the podcasts are those of their hosts you never forget your first time in the cinema the screen the sound the stories a space where everyone can switch off from the outside world and lose themselves in the magic for a few precious hours but that magic isn't just in here it's out there too it's the magic that supports more than 20,000 jobs across the country and keeps the cafes restaurants and bars buzzing it's the magic that backs incredible UK industries like distribution, production, and amazing special effects. It's the magic that even helps our high streets. With more than 75 million visits to local shops and restaurants after screenings every year. But right now, we're in danger of losing this magic. Because despite doing better than ever in 2019, our local cinemas could be closing for good. And we need strong, targeted support from our government if we're going to help them survive. This support will keep jobs safe, support brilliant UK industries, help our high streets bounce back, and keep entertainment at the heart of every community. Let's keep the magic alive. Ask your MP to help the UK's cinemas.